So today we're going to do something a little different. We're going to go back to where we've already been. We're going to go back into Matthew uh, 17, 9 through 13. We kind of skipped it a few weeks ago on Easter Sunday. And so we're going to hit it, and I think you'll see how these two work together today. So we're going to be in Matthew 17, 9 through 13, and then verses 22 through 23. So I was thinking about these passages, and this kind of picture came into my mind of, of something, and it'll make sense hopefully in a minute, but uh, it was this idea of, I don't know really what it's called, but it's kind of like the eye of the tiger, right? Not like the song, um, but just this, this look that people get in their eyes. And I've seen it in sports. Um, you know, it's where the team that shouldn't win just has a look about them, and they're able to beat the team they should never beat. And that's kind of the positive version of it. I would love to say that I have countless examples of my little scrappy teams beating the big gigantic teams, but I actually have a different version of the eye of the tiger. This is like the eye of the anti-tiger. This is where you're a team that has a chance, but at some point enough bad stuff happens and there's just this look in their eye where the edge is gone. The eye of the tiger is gone. They've given up. They've given up hope. The place I've seen this most often is when you're in a playoff game, right? Because every team dreams not about coming in last place, but getting the playoffs and winning. But when you get to the playoffs and you get to that point in the game when you realize, wow, not only are we losing, not only is our season done, but our hopes have been dashed. There is no playoff championship. And for seniors, it's even more painful as you watch them and they realize, for many of them, this is the last time I get to play this sport this way. And there's just that look of hope being lost, right? And so we see that and we go, oh man, that just stinks. That's just terrible. But this is something that I think we all can understand. Now let me, let me give you kind of a, a comical example, right, of what we're all experiencing inside when we've been in this situation when all hope is lost and what we want to do in response. So when I was in college, I had the privilege of throwing for the, the track team. I threw the javelin, and we were going to the district track, like the like regional track meet. And so we got to stay at school for an extra week and a half, which meant we lived in an apartment on campus, and we just kind of hung out. We had no school. We were just preparing to go travel up to Seattle and throw. And so that was really fun. So me and my good friend, my roommate, decided, hey, let's play a game. So he got out the game Axis and Allies. If you want to waste a good six to seven hours of your life, <laughs> Axis and Allies is where it's at. So we played it, and it was fun. So the second day, and I got worked, by the way. It's a, it's a, it's a board game that really reenacts World War II, like the whole thing, and it's genius. It's brilliant. It's a fun game. So I got worked the first time, right? Like Hitler took over the whole world, and you know I didn't do my job, right? So I'm like, let's play again. So my, my roommate and I, we played again. And he was a rule follower. You know, he's got all these rules. And if you don't hit the rules, you can't go back and, hey, I forgot. Can I do this? Nope, can't do that with him. He's rules. And so we're, we're going through this game, and you got to follow these set of turns. You collect your money. You build your troops. You attack. You reinforce. And then you buy new things. And then you move on to the next turn. And you keep doing this over and over again. Well, about halfway through... We're at that kind of that crux point where the game could go either way. And my roommate forgets one of the rules. 
he forgets to collect his money at the beginning of his turn, which is a really big deal because that means the next turn, he doesn't get to buy anything and I just get to keep attacking. So yay America, right? <laughs> Allies are going to win. But we get about halfway through his turn and he realizes it. And I remember the look on his face because he's thinking, oh, I'm going to kick his butt again. And he goes, oh, no, I forgot. I forgot. And you could just see he was like disheartened. I mean, it's no big deal. It's just a board game. But I mean, he wants to beat his, his, his brother at arms, right? He wants to beat me. And so he did what I think a lot of us feel internally. He did it externally. You know what he did? Grabbed the board and threw it, <laughs> right? Went flying across the room, four hours down the drain. And I mean, that's what we feel when we lose hope, right? We feel like, I'm done with it. So you know what I was doing? I was sitting over in the corner and going, so does this mean I win? <laughs> because I feel like that's what this means, right? Right? He's like, we'll call it a draw. No. But see, here's the thing. When we lose hope, when we get our focus off of where it needs to be, it is really easy, whether physically to flip tables and be done, or internally, emotionally, spiritually, be like, I'm done. What's the point? And so today, I want us to see that Jesus is prepping his disciples for that moment when they are going to lose hope. He's been doing it for a while now. He's been taking them through and saying, there is a rough day coming. It is coming, and you need to be prepared for it. And really, this week, 17, 22 through 23, is the gateway into the next three chapters. Chapters 18, 19, and 20 are all about Jesus getting his disciples ready for Calvary, getting them ready for the cross. And so we need to see what this is about so we can see the hope that we have now because we're looking back through the cross to where we're at. So let's start. We're going to look at verse 9. And this, this section, 9 through 13, is as they're coming off of the Mount of Transfiguration. Remember, Jesus has revealed his glory to Peter, James, and John. And he's walking down off the mountain. And they, this is what happens. Verse 9. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, tell no one the vision. This is similar to Matthew 16, verse 20, when he said, don't tell anybody I'm the Messiah. These three disciples, Peter, James, and John, probably understand more than any of the other disciples, but still, they're missing something. They're missing something. They don't really understand it, and they really don't comprehend it. So if they share it at this point, they're going to only share part of it, and they're going to get it wrong. So to not confuse others, Jesus says, don't tell anybody. Don't tell anybody. I mean, and honestly, who would believe them? Jesus turned really bright, and it was cool. Like, there's no point. What's the point? We do know that they did tell people because this is in the Gospel of Matthew, and Matthew wasn't there. So they did tell people later. Verse 9, continuing, until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. This verse has a, a finality to it. Again, Jesus is predicting his death. But not only his death, but he's also predicting his resurrection. He's saying, I will be raised from the dead. Not mostly dead, not partially dead, but fully dead. So the disciples cannot open their mouths until Jesus has resurrected and they've seen the whole story. Because if they talk about it now, it's just like any other religious leader. Do good, try harder. 
Make yourself all cleaned up so God will love you. That's what they would have taught because that's what the Pharisees taught, that's what the Sadducees taught, and that's what every other religion teaches. So until they can get it, until they understand via the resurrection, Jesus is saying, no talking about this. So, of course, at this point, the disciples are confused. It's kind of their standing um, you know, characteristic. But not about what you'd think here, right? Like, if you hear this, and you go, raised from the dead, you're going to have questions. How are you going to die? What does it mean to be raised? When is this happening? What, you know, what, what can we do here? But instead, they get confused about something else. They actually kind of miss the point. They're kind of going, wait a second, Jesus, you're, you're really confusing. And if we're honest, sometimes it, Jesus is kind of confusing. Maybe they're going, we missed the point. And they did. <laughs> they just didn't miss the point that they thought they missed. All right? What they're, think, they're thinking is, is what, what if Jesus is not the Messiah that Jesus has been talking about? What if he's talking about somebody else? You know, Jesus is really hard to understand at times. So maybe this whole death thing, because remember, he just said on the Transfiguration Mountain that he's going to die. And now he said, raised from the dead. They're kind of going, okay, wait, we're missing something here because we don't think you should die, but you keep talking about it. Are you talking about somebody else? Because it doesn't seem to make sense. And so they, they float out a trial balloon to Jesus to say, maybe we're misunderstanding. Look at verse 10. And the disciples, it would be the three, probably Peter talking, asked, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come? Okay, that's weird. How did Elijah get? We remember Elijah and Moses appeared with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. But they bring this up. Why is that? Well, Malachi 4 has a prophecy about when Jesus comes. It says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Jesus has referenced the second half of Malachi 4, 5 several times already in the book of Matthew. Verse 6, he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So they're thinking to themselves, they're going, okay, we were just on the hill. We saw Elijah and he didn't stay around. He went back up to heaven. So if he's not here, like running around telling people, like Jesus is hype man, telling everybody, hey, this is the Messiah, everybody get ready, then maybe Jesus isn't the Messiah, but he's still going to be around and he doesn't have to die. Oh, this is great. So this is their riddle. Elijah left. Elijah didn't stay. So then you're the Messiah, but are you, are you not? Are, what? They're saying Elijah didn't come. Jesus, you can't be the Messiah. We just misunderstood. Yeah, that's it. No biggie. No dying. <laughs> right? Right? Jesus? It kind of reminds me of those suspenseful, scary movies where people are hiding out and they hear a sound and they go, oh, what is it? They're like, oh, it's the bad guy. And then all of a sudden, you know, like a cat peeks around the corner. And they're all like, oh, oh, see, it was just a cat. It was no big deal. And us in the theater are going, no, the bad guy's right behind the cat, right? But they're trying to convince themselves that there is no bad guy, that there is no bad thing coming. And that's what I see the disciples doing here. They're going, yeah, Jesus, we know you've talked about this whole dying thing. And now you're talking about this raising from the dead thing. And you've said it over and over again. But is there any way this isn't going to happen? Please? Pretty please? Is there any way? And so they're looking for a way out. 
but it's not there. And then Jesus comes in and he solves the riddle for them. He says, I am the Messiah. And as a matter of fact, Elijah did come. And spoiler alert, it's John the Baptist. Look at verse 11. He answered, Elijah does come and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come. And they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So again, Elijah must come. He's talking about Malachi. Remember Matthew eleven eleven. Jesus says, John was the greatest man who ever lived. But look at what they did to him. They locked up John on trumped up charges. Now don't imagine our justice system today, right? He had no protected civil rights. They didn't knock on the door and kindly take him outside with a little walk, you know, with the handcuffs and all that. There was no prison cell with three squares a day and cable TV. No, this was brutal. He was beaten. He was dragged. His civil rights were violated multiple times. He was humiliated. He was abused. It was terrible. They did whatever they wanted to John, and they were allowed to do it. Then they march him to the executioner, where not only they killed him, but they took his head and put it on display on a platter at a dinner party. He was made a spectacle in his death. He was ridiculed. This was bad. This was terrible. And this was who the greatest man who ever lived? This is what he had happened to him? Whoa. That's not good. But then look at the second half of verse 12. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. So see the connection here? Jesus is bringing it right back again to his death. He's saying, John the Baptist, you thought that was bad? I'm going to suffer that same way. Ironically, the quote was lost on the disciples. They don't go, what? What are you talking about? You're going to suffer like John the Baptist? Instead, they go, oh, yeah, he's talking about John the Baptist. They totally, they totally miss it. Now, this is not the first time Jesus has alluded to his death. In Matthew 16, 21, says he will suffer many things. I don't know how the disciples are getting their minds around this. Maybe they're saying, you know, Jesus is talking about suffering as a metaphor, you know, for stress. You know, he's going to be killed in the spirit. What exactly are they doing with these words? But we know Peter did not miss this. Remember what Peter did. He went up to Jesus and said, this is not going to happen, Lord. You need to stop talking like this. And Jesus says, get behind me, you instrument of Satan. But even here, it's too much. They don't even see it. They just gloss on over it into verse 13. The disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. See, they had understood that that part of it, but they missed the other part. They've missed it twice now. Jesus just said, I'm going to die and raise again. And then he talks about John the Baptist. Oh, and by the way, John the Baptist was humiliated and dead. I'm going to have the same thing. And they're like, oh, okay, John the Baptist got it. They're missing it. They understood that Elijah was a foreshadow of John the Baptist. Elijah and John were servants of God. Elijah was taken up. John was taken down. John, who was greater than Elijah, was abused. John was rejected, humiliated, and died. End. Nothing more. John was humiliated, suffered, and then killed. Jesus says, same thing's going to happen to me, folks. But there's one big difference. And this difference makes all the difference. And the difference is our passage today, verses 22 through 23. See, because here's the thing. Jesus is a revolutionary. Nobody doubts that. But the thing is, is what did this revolutionary do? If you remember in Acts chapter 5, Peter and the disciples 
have been preaching about Jesus. They've been preaching about Jesus dying and resurrecting. And so the Sanhedrin, those same people who killed Jesus, bring them in. And they say, don't talk about him. They say, we're going to do whatever God tells us to do. Look at verse 29 of chapter 5. Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey. They're saying, we're going to follow what God told us to do. Then listen what happens next. Verse 33. When they, the Sanhedrin, heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, this is Paul's teacher, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside. And he said to them, men of Israel, take care what you are about to do to these men. For before these days, Thutius rose up, claiming to be someone. And a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him dispersed, and it came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some people after him. He too perished, and all who followed were scattered. And if you remember the rest of Gamaliel's advice, he says, let's not resist this because we might be resisting the Lord. They beat up the disciples. They send them on their way. And here's the thing. The disciples kept preaching. Because here's the difference. Thutius and Judas the Galilean are dead. Jesus is alive. And this makes all the difference. You saw it in their speech there. They said, the God of our fathers, the God of Israel raised Jesus from the dead. This is the proof that you need. And you think about it, what's going to put us at the most odds with this world? Yes, some of the ethical teachings in the Bible are going to make people not like us. But really, the root thing that is going to separate us from others is Jesus. Now, it's not that Jesus exists or existed, because even atheist scholars believe that. It's not that Jesus died, because we all die. It's what happened afterwards. I mean, now the Muslims will say he didn't die as crucifixion, but they do say he died. But it's what comes next. The resurrection is what divides people. Because the resurrection is what makes Christianity Christianity, and it's what we are to put our hope on. And when we lose sight of the resurrection, when we lose sight of our hope being in that and that alone, that's when we lose that eye of the tiger. That's when we lose that ability to see. Four times in the book of Acts, Paul is summarizing why he's in trouble, why he's under arrest. Acts 23.6, he says, it is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead. Acts 24.21, I'm on trial because of the resurrection of the dead. Before King Agrippa in Acts 26, he says, why do you think it's so incredible that God would raise people from the dead? And then the Jews in Rome, he says, I am in trouble because of the hope of Israel, the resurrection of the dead. See, Paul's saying, what's causing people to not listen to me is the fact that I'm saying a man went to the cross, he died, was buried, and rose again. Deal with it. What are you going to do with that? I know we're a few weeks away from Easter, but we can't get past Easter. We can't lose our focus. So verses 22 and 23, this is the second specific prediction of Jesus' death. There are three in Matthew. 
The last one will be at the end of chapter 20. We've already seen one earlier in 16. There's been three different allusions, some indirect references, totaling about eight different times. Jesus has repeated himself, either saying, I'm going to die, or I'm going to go there and not come back, something along those lines. But this one is the most specific, and it brings in the resurrection, which is huge. So we're going to look at three things in verses 22 and 23. We're going to look at this idea of being delivered over. We're going to look at Jesus being killed and then Jesus being raised. The first one delivered over is the longest. So they're going to go from longest to shortest. So the first one, verse 22. As they were gathering, the they is now the disciples who have joined him, all of them, in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. That word delivered means to be betrayed to be sold down the river. It's an ominous term. It's saying Jesus is not only going to die, but somebody's going to stab him in the back. Somebody is going to betray him. And they're going to deliver them over into the hands of men. Some translations say wicked men because there is kind of that flavor to it, but he's delivering them over to people that want to hurt him and humiliate him. And if we remember the cross, we remember that it is humiliation. He's being made little of by the soldiers, the rulers, the crowds. Why does Jesus keep bringing this up? Why does he keep bringing up his death? Why is he alluding to this? One of the reformers said, the nearer the time of his death, the more often Christ warns his disciples, lest that particular sorrow should undermine their faith. In other words, Jesus is preparing his disciples because their greatest test of faith was not the walking on water, not the, the dividing of the bread, and the fish. It's not the healings that they couldn't perform. Their greatest trial is having to stand there and watch Jesus murdered, destroyed is what one translation says. Are they going to keep their faith? Are they going to keep it? In those hours, in those days, his disciples would despair almost to the loss of hope. And Jesus is preparing them for that. So look at Jesus' focus here, right? He's, he's on his way to the cross. We're, we're thinking time-wise about six months is about how far away at this point in the book of Matthew he is from the cross. He's going to experience one of the worst deaths imaginable. And on top of all that, he's going to have all the sins of the world heaped on him. I mean, if anybody has a right to take some me time and focus on self, you know, go off and have a little Zen retreat or something, it's probably Jesus. What he's got bearing down on him is the most horrible day in the history of the world. And yet, look at his focus. Disciples. Let me tell you about this. Disciples. Let me prepare you. Look at his love. He's going to spend the next three chapters devoting completely to getting them ready. I mean, we we can't miss this, this humiliation Jesus is delivered over. These wicked men are going to treat him as a toy, as a mere thing that they can brutalize and destroy and cut and hit and spit on. He's taken advantage of. He's under their power, under their jurisdiction. He's mistreated. However, this was all a part of the plan. Both Paul and Peter make this very clear. Romans 8.32 and Peter in Acts 2.22 This is a part of God's plan. The humiliation of Christ, the pouring out of God's wrath, this horrendous death is all a part of the plan. 
So when I hear something like that, I want to ask a question. Why is that a part of the plan? Why is it a part of the plan that Jesus must go through humiliation? Why couldn't it have been that he just boom, beam down here, die of old age with all our sins on him, and done? Why couldn't Jesus have come down here and just taken a pill and gone to sleep and done? Why did it have to be this excruciating? When we see the passion of the Christ or we hear someone talk about all of the things happening to Jesus' body on the cross, why does our Lord have to deal with that? Why does He have to have that? And the way to answer that question is to look at another question that we ask all the time. And that question is, is my sin too big for God to forgive? Lord, I've sinned. This is the same sin. I've done it a hundred times. Clearly that means that there's no sacrifice too great that can cover this. See, the thing we got to do, and and I owe a lot to to Brant Hansen. He wrote a book about um, about this. And in it, he's talking about we need to have these two things together. Whenever we look at ourselves and we go, I am too bad for Jesus to forgive, we have to then turn our eyes to the cross and everything that led up to it and go, no, he paid it all. All of it has been paid. He didn't get done and say, well, it's finished, but not for you really, really bad 21st century Christian. Not for you that has done it a hundred times. Not for you, but for everybody else. No, it is finished. It is done. See, we let guilt beat us down. We let the demands that we foist on ourselves beat us down. Feeling like we'll never measure up. That's okay. You don't have to measure up. Jesus measured up. He fulfilled the law on our behalf. When we look at ourselves and we go, I cannot believe that I'm the one that did that sin. I cannot believe that my trajectory is one going towards that, a terrible sin that only really bad people do, but I'm right here and I can see that I could get there. Jesus died for that sin. He died for the really bad one too. He died for every single sin. And the humiliation and the just breaking of Jesus was to show how bad sin is. And yet He endured it. And then, praise be to God, He rose again. When you, when you see this, when you get this guilt or this feeling of not measuring up, look to the cross and go, but He did and I'm in Him. If I belong to Jesus, that's my only hope. And He doesn't stay dead. He is born again. Just like we are born again when we become followers of our Lord Jesus Christ. There is resurrection in this room. Ephesians 1, you were dead in your sins. Dead people don't go grab on to Jesus. No, Jesus grabs on to them and brings them back to life. So see, this is what our sins deserved. And Jesus is trying to help His disciples understand this. So the first part, delivered over, humiliation, broken. Next we see He is killed. Verse 23, and they will kill Him. Jesus is speaking of Himself. Now it's clear, the rest of this verse says, He will be raised on the third day and they will be greatly distressed. It's clear that the disciples only hear the word killed. 
They don't hear the raised on the third day. I mean, if they had, they, what would they have done? Would they have been happy? Maybe they would have still been sad. Maybe there would have still been some, some mourning, but they're missing the fact that the resurrection proves it all worked. Proved that God took it. Proves that God accepts the sacrifice. See, this death of Jesus was not just any death. It was a death invested, imbued with the power to save us. It means we can be transformed. It means there's resurrection, but there's also resurrection in our hearts. This transformation means that when we die and stand before the Lord, we are not seen in our sins. We're seen in Christ's righteousness. So when Satan, that great accuser, comes against us and says, this one, this one doesn't deserve it, Jesus looks at them and says, what sin is there in them now? This is my child. My sinlessness is on them. And the devil has nothing to stand on. But the power that comes only comes through one thing, and it's the shedding of blood. Hebrews 9.22, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. So Jesus chooses this cross. He is now moving towards the cross. Six months down the road, he knows what's coming. He knows the hairs on the heads of the soldiers who are now forming the nails that are cutting the boards. He knows what they're eating. He knows which, which ones are going to be stationed on the night. He knows each and every one of them. And he dies for each and every one. Puritan John Owen said, There is no death of sin without the death of Christ. But because of Christ's death, death has died for God's people. So now let's look at the raised. Verse 23 again. He will be raised on the third day, and they were greatly distressed. See, the disciples couldn't get their minds wrapped around this. They couldn't get their minds wrapped around this part of the prediction. And so they only see sorrow. There is no joy because they don't understand what's coming next. However, we're looking backwards through the cross and we see that there is joy for us. We're not just talking about the amazement of our sins being taken away but also the resurrection, this new life that we are going to be able to live. We all experience tragedies and trials and sorrows. Do we bear them in light of the resurrection? Another reformer says, overwhelming horror of the cross suddenly seized the disciples and it shut the door to the comfort they could have derived from the hope of the resurrection. See, isn't that it? When we see the resurrection and we understand the end it should help us be able to see more clearly what's going on now. We forget the hope of the resurrection because the moment overwhelms us. Yet Jesus is saying here to his disciples, the glory of my resurrection will transcend. It'll be far greater than the worst moment you've had on this earth. So have you trusted in the one who defeated death, who has given new life to us through his resurrection? It's not just what gets you through the next life, but it gets you through this life too. The disciples were moved by this. The disciples got this. Remember we talked about Peter a few weeks ago and how Peter didn't stay in his dumbness, right? He didn't stay in his immaturity. He grew to maturity. But look at this. Peter gets it. Look at 1 Peter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again, resurrection, to a living hope. How? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Now go back to verse 4 for a sec. Trevor, go ahead and go back to verse 4. Look at what he says here. He says there's an inheritance, so it's in the future. But he said right here, we have now a living hope. It's both. We're living in it now, and we get it fully in the future. Not only that, he says, imperishable. It's not going away, folks. It lasts. It's not outdated. Undefiled, no defect. There's no pollution unfading it only gets brighter and where is it kept it's kept safe it's in heaven this eternal life that we get to start now is because of the resurrection in our hearts it's the beginning of the resurrection of the entire world see the world does not stay the way it is praise be to god it starts anew on the new heaven and the new earth is promised to those who follow him See, this is what Jesus purchased us, not only with his death and resurrection. Paul, again, I want to just put this one out here. 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ was not raised, then our preaching is in vain, our faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it's true that the dead are not raised. If, if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our faith is futile and you are still in your sins, then those of you who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. He's saying the resurrection is what tells us we're not in our sins anymore. Our sins are not counted against us. And he doesn't just mean the resurrection of Christ. He means the resurrection in all of us. That reborn heart. And yes, nine times out of ten, it wants to sin. But that one time shows, hey, there's new life here. There's new direction. Praise be to God, the Holy Spirit comes in and helps clean up house. See, we can't have the results of the cross without the cross. The disciples always want this. But this is glorious news. If Jesus were not raised, then death had defeated him and he's not victorious. If the tomb isn't empty, there's no good news. There's no gospel if Jesus is dead and a molden in the ground. Instead, Jesus is raised from the dead, and that means that we have new life. It also means that not a thing we do on this earth for Christ is in vain. Whether we're serving somewhere and nobody knows it, nobody sees it, it doesn't matter. It's not in vain because our Lord sees it. Our Lord understands it. It also means that there's not a single soul that is lost to the grave that is his. So what does this resurrection hope look like? Well, first, a hope, like C.S. Lewis says, is a continual looking to a future time, to an eternal world. So building off of our idea of faith last week, remember, faith is believing and trusting. It's belief and action. It's knowing something and then reacting accordingly. Faith always involves trust. The biblical hope is built on faith. So last week we talked about faith like a mustard seed. This week we're talking about what hope does. Hope is anticipation. Hope is, oh, is it coming? Really? See, here on earth, we're like the little kid who knows they're going to Disneyland, and so they're looking through all the brochures. 
oh, that's going to be great. Oh, that's going to be great. Oh, man, that's going to be awesome. When we die, we wake up in God's Disneyland and we get to see the real thing. See, this hope that we have now is meant to encourage us and strengthen us and get us excited for what's coming next. Faith and hope have to go together. Faith is grounded in the past. Hope is looking forward to the future. And it's not the hope of the world where I hope I get a bike for Christmas. It's I know this is coming. I can't wait for it to get here. I cannot wait. So, as we are wrapping up, why does this resurrection hope matter? Why do we need to have this? So if you're here today and you're, you're a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ and you're a believer, why do I need to be thinking about the resurrection and be longing for it and, and looking forward to it? Well, the first one is an individual reason. We're all going to die. Every single one of us. If the Lord tarries, we're all going to die. Resurrection hope gives us the opportunity to think clearly about what comes next. Gives us an opportunity to think rightly about death. Not the way the world lays it out, not the way we hope it laid out, but what does Christ show us in his resurrected body? What do we get to look forward to? So look for and understand this, that there is a hope. We're all going to face our aging getting older, aches and afflictions. And since we're all going to die, we should start focusing on the next life. So what does that look like? So individually is first. Second, relationally. We're all going to be near people who are going to die. Old, young, healthy, sick, the wise, and yes, the fool. All of us die. Some of you will have the privilege of standing next to someone when they die. But all in all, we should count it a great privilege to recognize that every single individual has the opportunity to have this hope, to have this resurrection hope, this idea that there is more to life than this life. The third thing we see is we see what we call Christological, which means the study of Jesus. What we're saying here is that Jesus has been raised from the dead. We know this. We see this in God's Word. We know it to be true. So we should commit ourselves to focusing on the one who beat death. There should not be a day that does not go by that Jesus is not the focus of my day, not the focus of my life, because what he said is true and we can live in light of it. Fourth, theological, or I would say biblical. When you start reading the Bible, knowing the ending, knowing that Christ is going to raise from the dead, it makes sense of the entire Bible. You guys know that there are parts in the Bible that the Jews to this day don't read? Because they go, that makes no sense. Like the book of Hosea, that makes no sense. Nobody got punished for Hosea's sins. How, how could he forgive? Right, our book of Isaiah, all this whole crushed for our iniquities thing. Eh, that's just hooey. Let's not read that. As you read the entire Bible and you see how it all fits together, it shows you that this resurrection thing was the main idea from the start. And then last doxological, which is a big way of saying praising God. When we see this resurrection, this idea that there is a resurrection coming, that there is a hope for us, this should lead us to praise and joy and thanks and honor and on and on and on. This should stoke the flames of delight in our lives. 
that we have a God who beat the thing that no one on earth can beat. And He's going to allow us to beat it with Him. The resurrection means that God is for us. No one can buy this resurrection. Jesus has already done it. When we trust in Him, it's more than accepting a fact. It's putting our trust and our hope in Him. It means living so confidently that we have no fear of this world. So I'm going to finish with this. So we've talked about hope. We've talked about how we need to have a hope. We need to understand that our hope is in Christ and His resurrection for our resurrection. But I want to tell you a story and then finish with one last point. There was a man by the name of Viktor Frankl. Some of you know that name. Viktor Frankl was a Jew, and he was in a concentration camp. When he got done with the concentration camp, he survived. He wrote a book talking about what happened to people in the concentration camp. And he was focusing on those who gave up, those who lost hope. Those who had no motive for living. Maybe it was a loved one that they were keeping alive and that loved one dies and then they just gave up. They would curl up in the corner and die even under threats of the guards. Even brutality couldn't get them to move. They had just given up. Folks, this is where our world's at, isn't it? I mean, yes, you've got all these people and they all look so good. They polish themselves up for their social media accounts and their television appearances. And it looks like they've got everything all together. But if we honestly pull back the curtain and see our world is curled up in the corner waiting to die. There's some that are more honest about it than others. Suicide rates are through the roof. The use of drugs, illegal drugs, and legal drugs through the roof. Depression is up. Confusion is up. People are going anywhere and everywhere to try to find something to fill the gap that is within them. And it's not working. And they know it. So here's the thought. It's not just enough for us who know Jesus to just be kind and hope that someone will ask me why you're so kind. Because some people think you have to be kind to earn your way to heaven, and so they're out there faking that, even though they're curled up in the corner dying. It's not enough to have a Bible that you sit on your desk. It's not enough to put a bumper sticker on your car. It's not enough to vote a certain way. It's not enough. Imagine, we live in a concentration camp And there are people all around us in our neighborhoods who have given up. And it looks different for each one. Some of them are given up by, they've traded in their wife for a younger model. Some of them have traded in their car for a newer model. Some of them have gone and decided, I'm just going to be drunk the entire time. Or I'm going to give in to pornography. Or you know what, I'm never going to leave my house because I can control what diseases I get. Everyone, everywhere is curled up in the corner with no hope. So why aren't we telling them about the real hope? Why aren't we? Are we worried that we're going to have people say no to me? Well, at least you gave them a chance. Are they going to slam the door on you? You guys, we live in Oregon. People are rude anyways. 
right? I mean, just think about going 40 on McLaughlin. You're going to get flipped off left and right. So what? At least they have a reason now to be mad at you. At least they have a reason to be upset at you. Think about the people in your life that you see on a daily basis. Do they know the hope that's within you? Not just do they know that you're a Christian, because there's a nice character of Christians in our world. And unfortunately, it's probably very wrong. But do they know the hope? Do they know that, hey, I know where I'm going when I die, and I know how you can know right here and right now. Would you like to know the Savior of the world who died for your sins? Here's the even harder part to this. If you're not feeling that, repent. There's no reason to not feel that joy and that hope in your life now. We're forgiven. We're renewed. We're a proof of a resurrection. Let the Lord go. Let Him be all in you. Romans 10.14 says this, How then will they call on Him who they have not believed? And how are they to believe in whom they have never heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? That doesn't mean you got to do this. Okay, that word just means proclaim. And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. As we watch the news, and we know it's never good, very rarely, let's not lament that things have gotten so bad. Let's not lament and long for a time in the past. Let's not think about who we should have voted into office or not. Let's not think about, oh, I wish it was this or I wish it was that. No, instead lament, why is it that the Christians are not sharing their hope with this dying world? And allow it to turn us outwardly focused. There should be no one in your life that does not know about this hope because if it's really your life, it's unavoidable. You can't hide it. There are so many without hope. Let's lament that there's no one who's gone to tell them. We have a hope. Let's share it. Amen. Worship team, come on up, please. If you need help with figuring out how to do this, there are some saints in this room that have been doing it for 30, 40, 50 years. There's elders that would love to speak with you. I'd love to talk to you if you have questions about any of this about what this means to have a hope. I know that, you know, I got 40 minutes to try to throw all the words and all the ideas out there with you, and I know sometimes it doesn't always, does, it's not clear, let's just be honest. Make sure you don't leave today without knowing it, knowing what the hope is, seeing it clearly. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it does not return void. Thank you, Lord, that even a small passage like this that doesn't seem to fit with our world now. It's just a proclamation about Jesus dying and raising again. How can that apply to today? Lord, thank you that your word through your spirit makes sense to today. Lord, thank you for the hope that you've given us in your son's death and resurrection. And thank you for the hope that you've given us in each of us as we have a new life that is growing up to worship and to follow you. I pray, Lord, that it would be something we share, that we, we just can't help but tell those around us. Help us to do that, Lord. We need it. In Jesus' name, amen.